Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues on the personal finance team, Leonora Walters and Kate Bearley. We're also delighted to have a special guest on the show, Jonathan Springrice, a partner at financial planning firm Towery. Now today we're going to be talking about tips for retiring overseas prospects for bond funds and the new fund launch from star manager Neil Woodford. This week's Portfolio Clinic in Investors Chronicle magazine features a 36-year-old who's uh, he's an Indian expatriate and he's living in the UK and he, but he wants to retire back to India next year and he believes he can live there on £1,000 a month and he's going to generate that from his investment portfolio. However, he's worried about the effects of inflation and currency risk on the portfolio. And he also wants to know how his UK tax wrappers, so his individual savings accounts and his self-invested personal pensions are going to be treated when he moves abroad. Now, Jonathan, you are one of the experts on this portfolio. And I know you have some really good um, general tips for people who aren't thinking about moving abroad. Do you think this particular reader's worries are valid, for example, about, you know, he's worried about currency risk and inflation for a start? Uh, ab- absolutely. I- I currency risk is going to be a major issue for him. His investments are, st- are currently sterling-based. Uh, if he's moving to an environment that doesn't use sterling as their currency, then he has to think about that. Uh, currency risks can be significant. Uh, take, for example, the sterling dollar rate. Um, in 2008, the sterling dollar rate was around $2 to the pound. It's now around $145, 146 uh, If anybody had been moving um, to the um, U.S., uh, and relying on sterling to provide them with an income or financial support, then they've lost a lot purely on currency risk. Uh-huh. And um, obviously inflation can be different in different countries, so you've got to think about your portfolio and how that's going to deal with um, the potential effects. I mean, this chap's moving to India where inflation is potentially high. Do you think that is a worry? Or? Uh, again, that will be a relevant issue. He has to think about the impact of inflation. So he has to, he has to really think about he's moving from... Um, a, this country where he's got sterling-based investments, sterling income, um, inflation issues here, tax wrappers here, all those rules are likely to be different from uh, where we are now to when he moves to India. So he really needs to seek advice about what's the situation going to be in India, what's inflation, what's the currency position, um, spread the risk off there, what's the tax treatment of the various investments that he has, how is that tax rule implicated or followed through into India. For example, ISAs, um, although they're tax-free in the UK, uh, that's unlikely to be accepted as tax freedom in India. So we may find that the ISA is not a suitable investment for him and he needs to consider whether there's advice to move somewhere else. And should he be getting that advice before he goes or um, can he get it when he, when he actually moves? He's probably better to seek some advice before he goes, but he needs to seek that advice from somebody who has experience and knowledge of the Indian tax situation. Mm-hmm. And that's likely to be somebody who's actually in India. and, and That's for example, more yes. likely to be the situation. But yeah. also there is an, an important issue here that there may be some, when he arrives in India, he'll become tax resident there. Uh, so that from day one, uh, if he is making changes to his investment structure, he wants to be sure that any changes he makes, for example, selling of the ISAs, which does not create a capital tax in the UK, um, if it was to wait until he arrived in India, and it would have done so. It would have been sensible to have made those changes before he went. 
Okay, well, all good, all good tips there. Thank you, Jonathan. Now, also on the theme of retirement, we've been looking this week at the new pension freedoms, which started on the sixth uh, of April. Now, Kate, you've you've been looking at how things are panning out so far. What have you found? Um, well, I think obviously there was talk that um, the second people were allowed access to their pots, everyone would be going out and <laughs> buying a cruise or buying speedboats, Lamborghinis, whatever. And it does look like that hasn't happened so far, at least. From pensions companies, IFAs, it sounds like there was a massive response, tons and tons of callers. I mean, Hargreaves took thousands in the first few days, Standard Life over 3,000 calls, Scottish Widows apparently over 12,000 in, in the first week. But they all say that the most popular option has actually been flexible drawdown. And that's what people are most keen on. And some taking lump sums, but not those kind of massive amounts that uh, that people were, were being so pessimistic about. All right. So the worst case scenario hasn't really panned out that people were worried about. Well, that, that's yeah. what people are saying. Yeah. And yet yeah, so far, I guess we should say. <laughs> yeah. But yes, it sounds like people are broadly being sensible or, or taking advice and kind of taking out money as part of a financial plan. Mm. Jonathan, what, what's your, your view on the new pension freedoms? What have you seen uh, I think clients in, in, worrying about? Okay, well, in terms of uh, what's anybody done so far, I think it's far too early to say, quite frankly. We're only about a week or so into it. Time will tell, and probably the next three to six months is most likely to be the period when we work out what people do. Pensions freedoms cl- clearly very attractive in terms of giving people the ability to do what they wish. But there is potentially a downside of this, and, and that's the one that everybody's worried about, is that people will not realise that this actually is supposed to be a fund which provides financial security for them for the, for the future and the rest of their life. And they may have taken, a, for example, look at buying a buy-to-let. They may take the money out and decide to buy a buy-to-let property. But actually, that means they've then got an illiquid asset. It's not let out. They've then got a problem. At the same time, they're going to incur tax in taking that money out. So there needs to be uh, real understanding and thought before you make any decision about what you're going to do with your pension fund. Mm-hmm. Okay, the... the- Government has made the the tax situation a, a bit better, hasn't it, since it launched? The revenue has introduced some new forms, I believe. I, yes, I, well, I think the main thing with the tax is obviously the, being able to take out the 25% tax-free. And now there are some new forms so you can reclaim overpaid tax much faster than before. So if you were withdrawing a huge lump sum, uh, much more than you would do, just because you wanted to treat yourself, for example, at the beginning of retirement, you're not going to be hit with a huge emergency tax bill. Is that right? Um, I th- no, I, th- I think you still can be hit with yeah. an emergency tax bill. And I think that is actually probably an area that people are not so aware of and, and need advice on that, you know, if you if you do take out a massive amount after that 25%, you, you can incur a huge tax bill. I think that the new forms are mainly aimed at being able to recoup overpaid tax very quickly, right. but don't necessarily excuse you from a quite punitive tax if you take everything out in one go. Okay. Uh, the tax interplay between tax planning uh, and your investments is, is crucial really here with pen- the pension freedoms. And if, if you have lots of different sources of income, for example, from your pensions, from ISAs, maybe from buy-to-let property, you're re- going to really need some, some decent tax advice here, mm-hmm. aren't you, Jonathan? What, what you need to do um, is that always the same. This hasn't changed. It is to actually have a proper um, considered financial plan for your future. So that means deriving an income from a range of different areas. It might be ISAs and it might be investments outside of your pension fund. The pension fund just forms part of that retirement plan, um, but not necessarily the main part of it. 
perhaps in the past it would have been the pension was the key income driver. Um, I think the difference now is it's just another vehicle for meeting your financial security and your income needs in retirement. And planning is by looking at each one of them and working out what the tax implications are from each one and whether it's better to draw it from one area rather than another because it gives a better tax position. Yeah, I've heard that the pension now is effectively the most tax efficient place to keep your money uh, for, for the rest of your life and that you can that you know you can hand it down to your children you can well, so I, maybe you should just not use the pension freedoms and keep the money there if you have I think other there's, I think there's a danger of everybody adding two and two and getting eight at the moment mm-hmm. is because whilst that is fundamentally correct it is currently as we stand the pension fund is a highly attractive vehicle from a tax point of view and from an estate planning point of view but actually I'm not sure there was never an intention from the governments when they put pension flexibility into place to convert what was supposed to be a retirement pot into an estate planning vehicle. And that's where it is. We also have to be mindful of the fact that pensions legislation has changed significantly on at least three or four occasions in the last 10 years. So what are the chances that it won't change again, particularly with a future government coming up perhaps in a month? So there could well be some, some more changes to cut off the potential estate planning advantages which it currently has. So flexibility is the key thing. Retain flexibility. Don't necessarily assume that the rules that are here today are still going to be around in 20 or 25 years' time. Yeah, that's, that sounds very sensible advice. Thank you. Right. In this week's magazine, Kate, you've been looking in detail at investing in bond funds. Now, bonds used to be generally a safe port in a storm, but they're now thought of by many as unpredictable assets with record low yields. So what are the concerns, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody has been talking about bonds in um, in recent months or, or kind of for the past year, because as you say, they have become so much less predictable. And I think people used to think of bonds as, as good kind of income-producing diversifiers for your portfolio. And people kind of thought they, they could predict what, what different bonds would do. But um, that's just not the case at the moment. The major change has obviously been to government bonds, which have been kind of heading into negative territory for the past few months particularly. QE has pushed down yields and, and pushed up bond prices all over the world. So now we've seen negative yields on German bonds, French bonds, and now we've had um, Switzerland become the first government in history to sell benchmark 10-year sovereign debt at negative yield, and that really is quite momentous. So, I mean, it, and it's interesting for, for kind of, you know, the retail investor because yields being in negative territory, it obviously means that you're paying more than the value of the bond and its interest payments, and you're guaranteed a loss holding to maturity. So that's why people are so kind of interested in this phenomenon. Now, a lot of people will be holding bonds through bond funds. What should you be thinking about if you're invested in a in a bond fund? Jonathan, do you... I think the, um, the one danger we have with the bond funds is because of the low yield environment and because of the fact that, that um, government stock is, is so rightly pointed out in, in some cases in a negative yield, that people are actually investing more into higher yield debt. Um, so now what they're doing is they're getting a rather poor risk, um, sorry, a high risk for a poor return ratio. Um, and that's something which is a, a bubble, which is at some stage is going to deflate quite quickly. So you've got to be very mindful of the fact that you've taken on um, an asset which actually carries more risk 
and the return you're getting for it is actually pretty low. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm. even if you've invested in a diversified fund of lots of different types of Uh, bonds, uh, the the risk Mm. profile is higher. Absolutely. Just because you're diversified, diversification clearly helps reduce some of that risk. That is absolutely true. But nevertheless, the fact is that bonds which high yield bonds which are historically much higher the yields than they are currently are now because they were you were getting more yield because you were taking more risk the yield has come down but the risk hasn't changed so the level of risk you're taking is still there but the return you are getting in terms of that compensatory income is much lower and that's the case for both corporate and high yield now, absolutely. isn't it? And both are looking really overvalued. A- a- so. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and they're being made worse by, as you say, the quantitative easing going on into the mm. environment. We've got low oil prices, so low energy costs, low commodity prices. We've got um, a global in- environment which has been very positive for equities. Fixed interest has got, has got worse. I think there is also a danger that if the bubble deflates in equities, actually bonds could go down at the same time. Mm. All right. So if you want to invest in bonds but keep your risk low, Kate, what you sh- what should you go for? Um, I think I think the answer is is to go for a strategic bond fund, which uh, they're more nimble and able to kind of invest in different bond kind of asset classes. So depending on the macro environment, can switch in and out of longer to shorter duration bonds and just kind of change up what they're doing more regularly which is you know not putting all of your eggs in one basket in a sense but the strategic bond funds themselves will have different risk profiles obviously so jonathan what should you be looking for there in terms of lowering your risk well certainly you should keep duration lower if the duration's shorter then you're going to be carrying less risk you are going to have to accept they're getting going to get lower yield Um, most fund managers will have some exposure to fixed interest But if you're wanting to reduce the risk, the only way of reducing the risk is to actually have shorter duration, which gives you the impact of lower yield. If you need the yield, then you're just going to have to accept you've got higher risk in that. But then it questions whether equities, which are giving reasonable yields anyway, aren't actually an asset class which over the longer term is more likely to be attractive. Mm, I guess as a a diversifier, probably good to have both bonds and equities, isn't it? And that's why I think you'll find that, that many discretionary managers will be using bonds as a diversifier, but they're probably at their lowest percentage of fixed interest in their portfolios they had for many years for obvious reasons. Okay, well, continuing on the theme of bonds, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Leonora Walters has been looking at a fund that specialises in investing in high-yield bonds. It's called the CQS New City High Yield Investment Trust, and it's a member of the Investors Chronicles Top 100 Funds. That's our select list of actively managed funds. Now, Leonora, how is this trust different to conventional bond funds? And how has it been performing? Right. Well, the main difference here is it's an investment trust, a closed-end fund, so it doesn't have to meet investor redemptions. The managers are actually quite bullish on high yield and have been investing there. And their line is, well, we don't have to meet investor redemptions. So if people come out of bonds, if it's a run on bonds, no one's going to make them sell. They can sit out the problems. And they actually said to me that during the financial crisis, when you know things were going haywire, they had bonds then. All right, the values of the bonds went down. They didn't sell. They sat on them. The bonds kept paying the coupons. Bonds didn't go, they didn't default. Um, they matured and uh, you know, sorted. So they've kind of quite keen the fact that, you know, having a closed structure means you can invest in these riskier assets. CQS New City High Yield also says it's doing a, a lot of other things 
to mitigate bond market risk. For example, it, it's quite diverse. It's got 130 holdings. Now, it doesn't just hold high-yield bonds or corporate bonds. It's also got 25% of its assets in convertible bonds, equities and floating rate notes. In fact, I believe 20% of the assets it has are floating rates. So if interest rates go up, you know, that's part of that hedged out. And picking up on um, what uh, was said earlier, the duration's low. It's got a duration of just over three years. So um, the, the fund managers maintain they are doing quite a lot of things to maintain the safety. And they do seem to be getting quite good results. The investment trust has, you know, an attractive yield, 6.8%. Now it underperforms the Association of Investment Companies UK equity and bond sector over one three five years. But this is quite a mixed bag sector, so I don't know how comparable it is. It beats the open-ended global bond fund sector over three, five and ten years by quite a margin. So it does seem to be um, producing results. OK, so that's an interesting one to mm. look at. Now, one of the biggest investment stories this week has been the initial public offering, or IPO, of Neil Woodford's latest venture. That's the Woodford Patient Capital Trust. Leonora, why has Woodford Patient Capital Trust increased its offer size this week? Um, Well, because of high, high demand. You know, star manager, star name, loads of excitement. I mean, the trust had originally targeted a 200 million IPO and the possibility of increasing it to 500 million But according to Woodford Investment Management, there's been so much interest, it might exceed 500 million. So now they've um, scaled it up so it can um, issue up to 800 million. All right. Now, if you wanted to get in at IPO, you've probably missed the boat. Yeah, it shuts at 11am today. But it starts trading on Monday, I believe, doesn't it? Yes, it it? does, on the secondary market. Um, Jonathan, you're you're obviously familiar with Neil Woodford. So what, what do you think of this new launch? I think it's certainly an interesting launch. The only warning I would give to individuals is, is that Neil Woodford's clearly a very experienced and very successful fund manager. But the only thing that you need to think about is actually this is a very different animal we're now investing in. It's intellectual property, it's startup companies, so you are carrying a great deal more risk. Investors shouldn't necessarily look at Neil Wood and say he's been very successful as a fund manager, therefore I'm going to invest with him. They should also consider on top of the fact that this particular style of investment carries a lot more risk and a lot more volatility. No doubt over long term it probably will be successful, but I would say to them, be mindful of the fact that you've got more risk in and don't necessarily expect the same pattern of returns over the same period as you've had from Neil Woodford's main income funds. Okay. Leonora, do the analysts agree with what uh, Jonathan's saying? Yes. Um, I think the investment is saying you know, exactly that. You know, It's not a UK equity income fund. This is venture capital and smaller companies, some listed smaller companies. So, you know, if just because you're sort of investor profile means you can invest in a UK equity income fund doesn't mean you can invest in this high risk fund so what I think what you need to ask yourself is you know not is Neil Woodford good is Neil Woodford bad is you know what 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 do I need as an investor and what is my risk profile you know can I take high risk can I take long term can I afford to lose some of my money can you know can I how long can I lock it up for if you tick all those boxes fine but I think what's in here it's it's not going to be unlike what maybe getting VCT now, you know, if you're low risk investor, you, you wouldn't even think about a VCT, would 
around you. So definitely consider your risk profile before you invest in this fund. And be prepared to hold for the very long term. Yes, very long term. term. Yeah, because I mean, unquoted investments, VCTs often say five years, but let's be honest, unquoted seven years, 10 years, VCTs sometimes hold them for longer, you know, so... Great stuff. Well, you can read more about retiring overseas, investing in bond funds and the new Woodford Fund launch in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.